You're listening to the ASN Kidney News Podcast. Ranga R. Krishnan is Dean of the Duke NUS Graduate Medical School, Singapore, a collaboration between the National University of Singapore and Duke University to create a graduate medical education program. In this episode, ASN Executive Director Todd Ibrahim speaks with Dr. Krishnan about how the two institutions work together to attract students and build the pipeline of physicians and scientists. So Dr. Krishnan, thank you for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you. What triggered the collaboration between the National University of Singapore and Duke University to create a graduate medical education program? So the background is the government of Singapore decided roughly early 2000 that they wanted to build biomedical sector as a growth sector for the Singapore economy. And so they built a hub for research in biomedical sciences. The hub is called Biopolis, and that was built roughly around the year 2000. Then they planned on building a cadre of uh, researchers who are physicians who can help take the science that uh, comes out of the research programs at Biopolis and translate it into the real world. And therefore, they were interested in building a medical school that could train such uh, individuals. And they looked at a variety of uh, countries and schools, and they chose to work with Duke because Duke has had a unique uh, curriculum for many years, where in the third year, all medical students spend a year of research. And therefore, the emphasis in the Duke curriculum has always been a research-based emphasis, and they were keen on... Uh, partnering with Duke to build a program that can uh, develop and train physicians who can also be scientists and clinician researchers. And, and how long has Duke had the team lead curriculum? So the background for this is the Duke curriculum uh, was started in the 1960s. And the Duke curriculum essentially is a little different from most of the other U.S. Uh, medical schools. And it's different in one major way. Most U.S. medical schools have a two-year preclinical and then two years of clinical work. So that means in the first and second year, people spend time in basic science and then go to the wards in year three and year four. But Duke started a program where they compressed the preclinical part into one year. So all of the basic science is completed in one year. And then in the second year, the student goes to the hospital and to the clinics and then in the third year, they do research and back into the clinics in the fourth year. So that's the Duke curriculum. Now, the Duke curriculum were, had to be modified in the Singapore context, and the rationale for this is the following. The way in which uh, students learn nowadays is quite different from the way in which students learned before. So in the past, students would go to classrooms, listen to lectures, take notes, and that's how they got most of the information. But in the last 10 plus years, students often don't go to the class. Somebody uh, takes the notes and they distribute it, and therefore they learn in a very, uh, in a different mode than what students used to do before. The other part of it is there's been a fair amount of background research showing that when you're in a classroom and you're essentially in a passive setting, 
you learn in the first 10, 15 minutes or whatever information you're getting, but you then don't learn very much after that. So in other words, the impact of lectures on learning is very modest. And that has been known, again, for a long time. Some of that early work was actually done in the 1890s, but and it was done by somebody called Ebbinghaus, and it's called the forgetting curve. So if you learn things in a very passive way, the amount of time that you retain that information falls off very fast over the next couple of weeks. So you actually don't remember much of the lecture if you try to recall it a couple of weeks downstream. But on the other hand, we know that people learn better when it's active learning. So when you're actually engaged in learning and you use the information that you learned, then you're more likely to retain it. So because of that, we took the Duke curriculum in Singapore and modified the approach in which we impart the curriculum. And that approach is what we call team lead. And basically, I'll give you a short synopsis of how that works. So students get all the information they need to learn in a given course beforehand. They learn on their own. So they get the material in the form of lectures, text material, audio material, and visual material. So they come to the class on a designated time and a designated topic. They get a pre-test exam. So the test is actually done using clickers. And so the faculty immediately see which areas in that particular topic the students are having difficulty. So it gets a good synopsis of how well the students learned the topic, but also if there were some systematic issues that crop up. Then after they do that, the students go into groups. That's the team part. Each group is maybe seven or eight students, and they teach each other and retake the same exam. So what you're getting is reinforced learning. And after that, the, if there is still material that needs to be addressed to the faculty, they discuss that. And then the next step is they take what they learned that day and apply it on a complex problem where there is no clear answer. And Or if there is a clear answer, it's not one that you can immediately find. And they are allowed to use any material. They work again in the same groups. And then they come up with the answer. They present it and discuss it. And the grading is done every class. So there is a part of the grading which comes from the individual test, part of the grading comes from the group test, and part comes from the application of the knowledge they used. So what you're actually getting is the same learning three times. And therefore, the retention goes up uh, dramatically. And that is an approach which is uh, we we're probably the first school to embrace it in a big scale. Other schools have done it in limited ways in specific courses, but our entire preclinical curriculum is imparted in this way. And that approach we call a STEAM lead. The other part that it actually does is it allows students to learn how to work together in teams, which is a critical component of patient care nowadays. Physicians work as part of complex teams, and this is a method to allow them to do that right up front. And the last part that we do is right from day year one, we actually run a program using uh, normal volunteers to serve as uh, uh, essentially to act as patients. And we use that as a way to try to teach students how to take history, how to do a physical exam, uh, how to work through complex issues in communication, etc. And so it's sort of a program that we start 
very, very early, right in the preclinical years itself. So they get used to trying to address uh, medical problems with uh, with patients, but here we start out with patient with actors who are actors patients. So how are the students in Singapore different than the students in Durham? So the students from Singapore, uh, because there's no pre-medical uh, uh, curriculum in Asia, most of the medical schools in Asia, other than the Philippines, students actually go into the medical school after high school. So when we had to go to this approach of taking graduate students, we decided that we don't look just for people with a pre-medical background, but any background. So about 20-25% of the students come from an engineering background. A fair number of them have done a master's degree and a few have done a PhD. So it's a broader, wider background. And they're also different in one other component. They come from 22 countries, quite different from most medical schools anywhere where most of the students will come uh, from the local population. This was an attempt to go much more global in recruiting students to come to Singapore. Um, and I think that uh, basically makes for a very interesting cultural mix in the learning process that goes on. And so the way they are different from a typical U.S. medical student is a background uh, is less uniform. They come from a variety of cultural and actually a variety of educational backgrounds uh, and a high concentration of uh, engineering background. Is there more of a sort of socioeconomic background is there a difference as well? Yes, the socioeconomic background uh, is also much broader because some of the countries the students come from, um, resources are extremely low and the background uh, usually uh, is often economically deprived kind of background. So we have students from Zimbabwe, there's one from Zimbabwe, there's some from China, there are some from India, Indonesia, Malaysia, etc. And, and, and there are also students from uh, uh, economically advantaged backgrounds, including uh, some from the U.S., from Canada, and from Europe. Now, you'll graduate your first um, students in 2011, and you'd mentioned that the 25% with a, a background in engineering. Do you anticipate that a large number will pursue kind of a career in bioengineering, kind of broadly defined, or sort of what what do you think their 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 practice and their research careers will look like? So the people with engineering background also come from, again, a variety of different backgrounds. Those who come more from the material science background, just talking to them, somehow they get interested in subjects such as orthopedics, cartilage development, et cetera, which sort of fits into their own background. Others are definitely interested in devices, electronic communication paradigms, that kind of thing. So I think their initial background will influence one choice of specialty, but it also probably will play a role in uh, how the career path develops towards building devices, et cetera, especially for the engineering background. Now, there's another medical school in Singapore, Kent Ridge, and I'm just wondering, is there a difference between the students that that, that school attracts in, the pro in your program? Yeah. The, the other school is about a 100-year school and comes from a British model, very high-quality education, the students all enter from high school, and that is the main difference. And it's a five-year program, uh, very much geared towards producing uh, excellent physicians, and really serves that purpose. So the students they attract are very bright, right out of high school, and uh, then they 
train them up in a more traditional format than what a U.S. school will look like. So it's quite a different background of students. Uh, most of the students or the majority of students are from Singapore. So the key there is really uh, focused on Singaporean students. And the curricula are different in this. They don't have a required research year like we do, and their preclinical curriculum is more a typical preclinical curriculum, uh, which takes a little longer. Yeah, you mentioned in the beginning that, that Singapore wanted to become sort of a, a biomedical hub, and I'm wondering why the, the government of the country made that decision. So I think uh, the background for that is Singapore is basically main resource for Singapore are people. And when they look out in time, they're currently very strong in uh, several sectors such as uh, electronics, uh, finance, and shipping. And they're trying to look for new sectors for their economy to grow in. And this is one of the sectors that, uh, based on their uh, understanding and research, they thought was a critical sector that's likely to do well in the future. And I think that decision was made after a fair amount of background research, and they decided to embark on building the biomedical sector. So what they first did was brought in manufacturing in the biomedical sector, and that has actually grown dramatically and is a good part of their economic uh, growth. And now they're building the research and development sector in the last decade. It's made Singapore very visible in the last five to seven years, and I think they want to continue to grow it and start integrating it by building their own knowledge enterprise in the biomedical sector. It's a long-term plan, and I think they've got it off the ground. And as you think about your first graduating class and, and the fact that they come from 22 countries, what percentage do you anticipate will stay in Singapore and start to develop research careers? So the so one major step uh, that the Singapore government has done is this year they started residency training. So the previous model of postgraduate medical education was similar to the UK model where uh, people would go to its college exams, medical college, Royal College of Physicians, uh, Royal College of Surgeons. And what they've done now is that seven specialties, including medicine, surgery, they've moved to an American uh, style postgraduate education. So working with ACGME, uh, they have developed uh, residency programs, and that's going to be the planned future is to build more such residency programs in Singapore. So now that allows the building of research, uh, years, research curriculum, et cetera, into the training, and that is the current plan for the students coming out of our school to go into residency and have hopefully a uh, significant number of them get into the research fellowship kind of programs. Now, some of them have already gone into an additional PhD program, and uh, we think between 10 and hopefully a maximum 20% would probably do MD-PhD pathways. Now, the Singapore has got a number of incentives uh, and funding designed to attract and retain these individuals uh, over a length of time, including uh, scholarships, uh, defined positions, etc. So I think it's, again, part of a larger strategy to retain as many of these individuals as possible. Does Singapore have an equivalent to the National Institutes of Health? The, the equivalent of that is in this new biomedical hub, and it is called Biopolis, and they call this uh, the Biomedical Research Center, BMRC.
You had mentioned the ACGME, and I guess just to clarify a point, it's my understanding that the ACGME, the Accreditation Council for Graduate Medical Education, accredits residency and fellowship programs in the United States and Canada, but has recently started to accredit programs internationally. And then I guess my related question is that the Joint Commission, which accredits healthcare institutions, also has an international component. So I'm just wondering if you could describe kind of the, the regulation and how much of, of the regulation of educational programs in Singapore is actually done by the United States. So the hospital systems uh, globally are beginning to get accreditation from the Joint Commission, uh, and they call it Joint Commission International or JCI. And that is uh, very common now in Singapore. The main hospital that we work with, Singapore General, is uh, Joint Commission accredited, and that um, basically means the standards are very similar to a uh, hospital in the U.S. Now, with ACGME International, the hope is to build the same kind of accreditation standards for the residency education. The medical school itself, because we are part of Duke, we are more or less uh, very, very similar in how the medical school in, in North Carolina functions. Uh, is a basic model on how we operate in Singapore, except we've used it as a test bed to improve and build uh, newer methods of creating uh, uh, medical education for the future. So it's really turned out to be a big plus for both uh, Duke and Singapore by being able to push things forward. When you start from scratch, there is uh, ability to experiment and build uh, much more effectively. So what have you changed, I guess let's start with the educational mission, what has changed in Durham as a result of your relationship uh, with the National University of Singapore? So the team lead approach is uh, is going to be brought back into the Durham program, and uh, they're rebuilding some of the basic facilities for medical students, and in a couple of years, because the rooms and classrooms are designed in a particular way to facilitate team lead. And I think the plan is uh, within the next couple of years to have similar facilities uh, built here. And that is basically built on the basis of what Duke faculty have done in Singapore and essentially bringing it back into Duke itself. And from the perspective of the patient care mission, what changes have you undertaken in Durham as a result of the collaboration? That, I think, is uh, yet to be determined. So the thing that you have in Singapore is the economics of the healthcare system are very different. So everybody in Singapore is insured. And second, the main emphasis on the public sector is high-quality care at high throughput at very reasonable cost. So the healthcare outcomes in Singapore are better than almost in most countries in the world. And on the other hand, their healthcare costs are very low. So they run probably between four to four and a half percent of GDP compared to double digit numbers in most of the other countries. And the way they do it is really streamlined healthcare system rather than uh, uh, just individual patient delivery system. So there are things in the model that could be useful, but at this point we haven't really got into the clinical translation back into uh, from Singapore to Duke or Duke to Singapore. So it's more at this point getting to know both systems. If the costs are, are lower and if the, the Joint Commission International accredits the, the healthcare organizations, do you anticipate U.S. citizens going to Singapore for care? 
I think uh, probably some extent, but a lot of their attraction is for the regional patients, and I think it fills up their system from patients from neighboring countries uh, going to Singapore for high-quality health care. And the hospitals that we work with are public sector hospitals whose main focus is for Singaporean uh, residents and citizens. Uh, but in other countries like Thailand, etc., which also have JCI accredited hospitals, are clearly attracting patients around the globe, and I presume a significant number from the U.S., at least from the media reports, are attracted to those facilities. And I assume some go to Singapore too, but um, I don't think that's the primary mission for them is to try attracting it, attracting from U.S. per se, but it's more a regional uh, attraction. Do you anticipate in the future, perhaps even the near future, more of sort of a, a global academic medicine? I mean, do you see academic medicine evolving into more of a, a global uh, realm? And if so, how do you think that will look in, say, five years? So I think medicine itself is becoming global, and it's more a question of how can you play a role in shaping how it becomes global. So if you look at what's happening with clinical research, a lot of clinical research is uh, now in Asia. So the clinical trial sector, a significant portion is now conducted in Asia. And the key is can you make sure the standards work the same and the ways in which people do the research, the ethics, etc., maintained irrespective of the country. Now, actual clinical care, therefore, gets informed based on these research and things like what's happening with JCI, with ACGME, all of these is hopefully will internationalize and help improve healthcare globally. So I think those things are going to happen. The question and the key is what is the role of academic medicine? How does academic medicine engage? How does academic medicine play a role in healthcare? How does it play a role in generating new knowledge? And I think uh, that's something that we clearly are involved with. So one of the things that we're working in this next phase is working with Singapore General Hospital to build academic medicine on the campus. In other words, right now we have about uh, 390 odd clinical faculty from Singapore General Hospital teaching our students. As we build residency, those numbers are going to have to go up. And so we actually spend a fair amount of time with faculty development. Uh, and now we're building clinical research. We're working to train people in clinical research. We're trying to encourage more and more of physicians to get involved in clinical research and also trying to build a, a translational piece. So we opened a phase one unit with the Singapore General Hospital. We have a collaborative program which is called Singapore Clinical Research Institute which runs phase two, phase three, phase four programs. We have a health services program, which is joint with the ministries, with the hospital. So we're actually beginning for academic medicine to not be an ivory tower, but to be actually an engaged partner in the healthcare service sector. And this model is something similar to what Duke has been doing in North Carolina, but it's uh, extending it out into a global base, testing it in Singapore, and then hopefully reaching out into other parts of the world. That was going to be my question. I mean, do you anticipate that Duke University will have similar collaborations in other parts of the world? Probably not a full-blown medical school, but more, I would call, tiered and uh, 
focused kinds of collaborations. And I think those kind of discussions are actually underway in uh, neighboring countries. And hopefully that will become a key component of our uh, mission is improving the healthcare and transforming medicine. And I don't think you can do it anymore in an isolated fashion. You just have to be part of a larger global community to make this uh, a realization. The one so, fact that that's good. I was just going to say, so from a more focused perspective, you mean, for instance, there may be a collaboration in in clinical research in, in say, Thailand. Correct. It could be a clinical research in China. It could be an education program in uh, uh, India. Or it could be a, a program in uh, cardiology in Thailand, whatever. So it's infectious disease in Vietnam. So we actually have uh, various kinds of things, initiatives, if you want to call it, building, but uh, they're yet to be fully developed. And so Duke has created an institute called the Duke Global Health Institute, uh, whose primary mission is to build these kind of uh, links and relationships. But the other part we're actually doing is because of the way we're building the educational approach in the medical curriculum, we're actually building, in a sense, a very large uh, warehouse of uh, material for medical education. And one of the things that we are now planning to do is to create this material into an annotated format of lectures. So it basically means, let's say you're interested in a particular drug and you want to know its side effects, you can go on the on your cell phone and click into the site and listen to just that piece. Or if you want to take a set of lectures and take part in a course, we want to build a course to help you do that. And we also want to use this as a way to help uh, medical schools which don't have resources to try uh, helping them take advantage of the resources that we fortunately have been able to build uh, in this new school. So from a personal perspective, how have you changed as a result of this experience? I think in two ways. Uh, one, for me personally, it was really uh, going back to the region that I grew up in. So I grew up in India and I know the region. I've been in Singapore on and off for 20 plus years uh, visiting. Uh, what has actually changed my thing is how much we can learn by looking at things from a different perspective. Uh, and so actually what we can learn is by being able to learn Singapore learning from what we do here at Duke and Duke being able to learn what goes on in Singapore. The other part that you're actually seeing is a visual transformation, I think, of uh, the economics that you're seeing globally. It's been sort of, for me, amazing to see it happen uh, almost on a year-to-year -year basis. Uh, the visual impression of the place is changing, which in turn makes you feel fortunate that you're able to see the world from uh, uh, more immediate contact perspective of what you read about in papers on economics, etc. And so I think it's turned out to be personally very interesting. The other part has actually helped is um, you build relationships with people from very, very different backgrounds. You get to hear them. You get to see their thinking. And for me, that's been a really wonderful experience. When you're in Singapore, you're like a hub. The people come from different countries to visit. You get to meet them. So actually, we have delegations so far from 88 institutions around the globe that have come to take a look at the method of medical education we're doing. And that's been eye-opening. People from Kazakhstan, Estonia, places I've never been to, uh, 
and you really get a chance to interact and hear a lot about what medicine is and healthcare is in all kinds of uh, parts of the world. It's just been a wonderful experience. Well, Dr. Krishnan, thank you very much for joining us for today's discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much for taking the time. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified healthcare provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.